Hello, uh, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. In uh, this episode, I'll be looking at Nihilar Opetep. Uh, this was originally written in December 1920. It was published uh, in somewhere in, I guess it was published in early 1921, according to uh, Leslie Klinger's notes here. Um, United Amateur is the journal that published it, and I guess they didn't have very clear publication dates because it says dated November 1920 but published no earlier than January 1921 um, I guess that's just the way it is um, so this story like we just looked at uh, Ex Oblivione and that's a two-page story and I didn't have that much to say about it this story Narlapotep is like a three-page story and there seems a lot more to say about this story it's just thematically there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of different concepts that Lovecraft kind of crams into this little story. Um, a lot of interesting things going on here. So it's it's very, very dense. It's a very, very dense tale. I think each line could be, could be analyzed. Um, and of course, this is, uh, I think this is like his first, the first mention of Narlapotep as a, as a god. Um, I think the first mention of him at all in his stories. He'll show up in other stories. Usually in passing, there'll be some mention of him um, by characters or in some kind of ancient text or something. Um, so he appears in six different stories. Uh, Klinger writes, uh, Love rats in a wall is a faceless god in the caverns at the center of the earth and dream quest of unknown Kadath, uh, fungi of Ugoth, dreams of the witch house, and haunter of the dark. So this is... It's really, I think this might actually be his first named fictitious god as well. We have seen gods before, like Dagon, like Quetzalcoatli, uh, but these were gods that are coming out of human traditions that were extant and, and you know, were worshipped in real human history at various times. This is a totally fictitious god, right? And of course, that's one thing he's most known for. So this is a, an important story just for that, that reason. But anyways, like I said, a lot going on in this story. Um, this was a dream uh, that Lovecraft had. So it's not a dreamland story per se. It's not really set there. It's not really set in our world either because it is a bit of science fiction-y story. It has like science fiction elements. It, it's kind of set in the future. Um, and its setting is not ours, but even though it has some parallels to our own or his own setting. So that's kind of interesting. It's definitely uh, drawing from things he's seen around him, but it's not quite set in our time. Because he talks about, like, it's almost like a post-apocalyptic story at times. Um, so there's, uh... so what I'm saying is it's like, it's not, it's, it is kind of set in, a, in an extra-worldly kind of area, even though it's drawn very much from Lovecraft's own anxieties and from the world he lived in. So... Um, that said, it's based on a dream, but not really, it doesn't really fit clearly into the Dreamland story so much. This is also the best description we get of Nyarlathotep, if, if I'm pronouncing it right. I, I, I think I'm close. Um, but it's the best description we get of him. Um, and it's so crucial to like this Cthulhu mythos stuff or this, uh, this kind of mythology that's built up around Lovecraft. Right. If you play the games, if you play Call of Cthulhu, you know, one of the most famous, if not the most famous campaign in the Call of Cthulhu role playing game is Masks of Narlapotep. Uh, and that kind of builds on this. But this is the most detailed description you get of him and what he's about and 
kind of getting a description of him as a, as a god here in this in this story. Um, so, anyways, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through basically chapter or paragraph by paragraph, and there's only six of them, but we're going to take each paragraph distinct as a distinct entity, and and again. They're so rich, like you really can go line by line almost or sentence by sentence in here. But I'm not going to go that detailed, but I'm going to go paragraph by paragraph and try to point out what I think are some of those interesting things about this story. So the first paragraph describes the general tension, kind of the conflict in the world at, at the time that this, you know, the narrator's life. It's not quite our time. It seems to be in the future because it's kind of a post-apocalyptic setting in some ways, especially in the last paragraphs. But it's, you know, it's, it's a world in crisis. And Lovecraft's time is also in a, in a period in which the American system was under deep crisis. It was the, you know, whether it was a racial, you, you had conflict over immigration, you had the great struggle between labor and capital still being fought out. I mean, that period of American history from the end of the Civil War, you know, the Gilded Age period, but especially that kind of 1880 to 1920 sometimes been called like the great upheaval because of just the intensity of of the class conflict being waged uh, on the streets lovecraft here writes the general tension was horrible to a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger a danger widespread and all-embracing such a danger as might be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night and you get out of this a bunch of people who are, are spouting revelations and prophecies, right? And, and again, I think this is something that is, is drawn from life at the time. Maybe not mystical prophecy so much, but you do have the rise of religious fundamentalism in the early 1920s. You got this growing kind of gap between the countryside and the city in America. And that led to a lot of religious revivals in the countryside. If you know anything about the, um, the, the Skokes Monkey Trial, for instance. That very famous trial that was really a, a conflict over like modern science versus traditional like religious values then you have of course these kind of um, revolutionary socialists of various types the iww or the anarchists and the communists who are also kind of providing their own kind of prophecies of of the future right and this idea that there's like all sorts of problems in the land that need to be purged I think that's something that Lovecraft is struggling with in his writing um, to a degree. He comes on the side of the conservatives, of course. But this story, in the sense that it does show a society in crisis that breaks down, you know, is not really turning, not really embracing that conservative narrative. It's kind of embracing the chaos, which, which I sort of like about it. Of course, Nyarlathotep is the crawling chaos, right? And of course, it's going to thrive. This God will thrive in a world in which crisis and chaos are are imminent in the you know in the newspapers, in the daily life of people. Now, this sense of unease has even kind of filtered into the weather. He writes, "There was a demoniac alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt that the world and perhaps the universe had passed from the control of known gods to forces." To that of gods or forces which were unknown, end quote. And I think you know that this is the first story to really introduce uh, one of Lovecraft's original created gods. One of these unknown gods is striking. Um, it, he is, you know, making he's writing this that you know unknown gods are being revealed. At a time he's actually doing that, he's actually revealing one of these unknown gods to his readers. 
So that's the first paragraph. It's a really, really powerful paragraph that uh, releases this, I think, very, very contemporary feel of a society in profound crisis. Uh, but in this story, that crisis is affecting everything from people's uh, mental states to the weather, uh, as well as just the social kind of conflict. So it's in the second paragraph we are introduced to uh, our, our god, Naralapatep, and we're told he comes out of Egypt, but no one knows where he's from. Uh, he looks like a pharaoh, right? So, you know, the descriptions of him, the pictures of him often show him as, you know, having, you know, as being kind of an as Egyptian pharaoh, whether that's like a racial or just a physical description. I don't know what the Egyptian pharaohs are supposed to look like quite uh, in a sense of physicality. There's a lot of obviously a lot of debate about to what degree, what did Egyptians even look like? Um, especially this has a lot to do with the Afrocentrist argument, the, the, the argument of some historians to try to make Africa or Egypt part of African civilization. And then there's a, a reason to try to talk about it as black African, right? But, um, you know, there's, if you look at actually the pictures from Egypt, that people are all sorts of different colors. So it seems to be mixed and you have uh, a lot of contact between Egypt and sub-Saharan Africa. So I don't know. Um, but he's described here quite who he was, none could tell, but he was of the old native blood and looked like a pharaoh. The fellow he knelt when they saw him, yet could not say why, end quote. Now, Nyarlathotep comes out of Egypt. And he interacts with Fellahin. Who are the Fellahin? Well, these are like the peasant class in the Middle East, right? They're not in this city so much, you know, this urban city in the United States. They, they, but where is this anecdote of, them, of the Fellahin kneeling when they saw him come from? I don't know. But it's kind of uh, back to this idea of like working class people carrying on certain traditions and knowledge of ancient gods. We saw it, you know, in like Juan Romero. We saw it in in a lot of tales. You go back to my podcast. I mentioned it many times. Here, this this idea of a vernacular religious tradition being carried on by religious by by the working class, right? It's, I think this reaches its ultimate in in like the horror at Red Hook, which that's the whole point of the story is like this Lilith worship being carried on by the immigrant working class of, of New York. But we got a little bit of it here, right? So maybe they're worshiping him all along or worshiping him or have a deeper memory of him. Uh, but we're told that he's very, very old. He goes back at least 27 centuries, uh, maybe even longer. Uh, quote, that he had heard messages from places not on this planet. You know, so maybe he even is, is he's certainly a god outside of our time. We're also told, though, that he's a bit of a scientist and a bit of a, a merchant type and a bit of a tinkerer, which I think makes gives it a very modern feel to the story. You know, although he is presented as, an, as a deity kind of rising out of ancient Egyptian aesthetics. Very, very modern guy. Listen to this. Into the lands of civilization came Naralapatep, swarthy, slender, and sinister, always buying strange instruments of glass and metal and combining them into instruments yet stranger. He spoke much of the sciences of electricity and psychology and gave exhibitions of power which sent his spectators away speechless, yet which swelled his frame to exceeding magnitude, his fame to exceeding magnitude, end quote. So he's, he's sort of returned and he's embraced these, these kind of public scientific gatherings, like these public performances of science, which were a real thing. 
I like the, especially with electricity as people are experimenting with and learning more about electricity you know you know there'd be fairs and you know the world's fairs kind of thing and there'd be other kinds of events where people would show off kind of the cool things you can do with electricity to an astonished crowd right and that's what he does here so even though he's an ancient god he fully embraces the scientific uh, modern world and there seems to be no difficulty in him making that transition um, and I just want to tell you that if you're, you know, there's a great, uh, one of Stephen King's greatest recent books is called Revival, maybe his best book of the last uh, 15 years or so, I think. But that book, you know, does a lot with the same kind of figure, someone who travels around and experiments in electricity. Now, he's got another goal. That character in that novel has a goal of learning about electricity as a life, as a way to kind of save life or to preserve life kind of like a frankenstein uh, kind of pursuit um, but he used to be a preacher right who had an interest in electricity and after his wife dies he gives up the priesthood and becomes for a time a member of a one like a, of a traveling carnival and he does different experiments with electricity really really great novel really well done and i was reminded of that when reading rereading this this story so he's traveling around and people go to see him. The word spreads that they should go see Naralapatep and, and witness his what he can do. And people go, but when they do, they can't sleep. They have nightmares and they have dreams. And much of the rest of this paragraph talks about the dreams that people begin to have. Now, this is important because this is something he's going to pick up with in the Call of Cthulhu, particularly where dreams uh, are a way that these ancient... Gods, gods kind of make themselves manifest in the world, right? Or make themselves known is to the dreams, particularly of the creator first. Here it's the people who kind of witness his achievements. Quote, never before had the screams of nightmare been such a public problem. Now the wise men almost wish they could forbid sleep in the small others, that the shrieks of cities might be less, might less horribly disturb the pale pitying moon as it gleamed on green waters gliding under bridges and old steeples crumbling against the sickly sky. Um, so that's the end of that paragraph is about dreams, how, how witnessing Narlapatep's scientific achievements leads people to have nightmares. But anyways, uh, Klinger puts a little note here, which I just want to shout out. I, you know, his notes are mixed and usually they're very useful, but I, I like this one because it mentions Tesla and Tesla is one of these public performers of electricity. Um, and Klinger writes, he was best known as an electrical engineer, inventor, and rival of Thomas Edison. He was called by one friend a poet, philosopher, and connoisseur of fine art and music. He presented his discoveries to the public in great showman-like demonstrations, offering with his Tesla coil, pumping electricity through a room, terrifying the audience. There's no evidence that Lovecraft met Tesla or even read firsthand accounts of his presentations. Um, but it wasn't just Tesla doing this. If you would have gone to any kind of World's Fair or even more regional fairs, you would have seen these types of, of, of things. So anyways, uh, now the setting for this story is not really clear. I don't think anyone's really identified where this is. Maybe it is in the Middle East, or maybe Nyarlathotep just kind of moves around the world. And eventually, though, he gets to our narrator's town. It's a hot autumn. We were told earlier that the autumn is getting hotter and warmer, and that's part of the kind of got like a little warming thing going on here um, with this emergence of this god. Um, but, quote, it was a hot autumn when I went through the night with the relatives across the sea, Naralapatep, through the stifling night and up the endless stairs into the choking room. 
And shadow on the screen, I saw hooded forms amidst ruins and yellow evil faces. End quote. So there's kind of a yellow peril theme here too. Um, uh, you know, these are sort of, these are clearly the racial other uh, that are on the screen that he is he's projecting. Let me read that again. Through the stifling night and up the endless stairs to the choking room. And shadowed on a screen, I saw hooded forms amidst ruins and yellow evil faces peering from behind fallen monuments. And I saw the world battling against blackness, against the waves of destruction from ultimate space, whirling, churning, struggling around in dim, dim cooling sun. Now, you could read this and, and not do a racial interpretation of this at all. I think that's it's a little bit hard for me to do that because that's kind of what I've been trying to pursue in this read through. But if you look at it, you can say, just say, well, the, the images are yellow. Well, you know, my old films, you know, they maybe had that kind of yellow grain. I, I, I've seen old films, you know, silent films that kind of have that yellowish look. Uh, and this world battling against blackness, it's not necessarily battling against, you know, the racial, any racial other. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to discount that entirely. That, you know, just because so often Lovecraft does make like the cultists of these gods racial others you know it's it's such a trope of his especially in call of cthulhu um the horror or the horror at red hook in particular those two stories innsmouth to a certain degree too not really about whiteness or blackness there but certainly there's a racial otherness to that even in the festival so but anyways uh he sees this film that's another cool thing here so it's also again very modern it's a very modern um experience that our narrator is having so he also gets the rest of the show quote then the sparks played amazingly around the heads of the spectators and hair stood on the end while shadows more grotesque than what i can tell came out and squatted on their heads and quote and, and he then says well i was scientific i didn't buy this i did not accept what this is magic right he says i was colder and more scientific than the rest and he mumbles, he actually states out a protest against this and kind of get, tries to give a scientific explanation for the miracles that they're being shown. And Nyarlathotep seems to respond directly to this challenge. Quote, Nyarlathotep drave us all out down the dizzying stairs into the damp, hot, deserted midnight streets. I screamed aloud for our, I was not afraid that I could not be afraid when others screamed for me with solace. I could never be afraid, and others screamed with me for solace. We sw swear to one another that the city was exactly the same and still alive, and when the electric beams began to fade, we cursed the company over and over again and laughed at the queer faces we made. Um, so he gives this challenge, and in response, Nalapatep essentially introduces us or, or begins this apocalyptic moment in the story and the final two paragraphs of the story are certainly apocalyptic so then we get a paragraph in which the crowd that's been pushed away by by Nara Apatep breaks up into into three distinct columns but first they they kind of observe these changes in the world and and it really you do get the sense that something radical has changed to the world quote once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, which scarce a line of rusted metal to shoon where the tramways had run. And again, we saw the tram cars lone windowless, dilapidated, almost on its side. 
when we gazed around the horizon, we could not find the th third tower by the river. I noticed that was a silhouette of the second tower with ragged on top. What's going on here? You know, now obviously this is Lovecraft's dream, and he seems to be relating the dream as it happens. So weird things happen in dreams that don't really need to be explained or have to be explained. But in the plot of the story itself, what is actually happening? Now, he has brought this kind of doom and doom to the world is is what's what's happening. And is it the one person who stands up and says, "I don't buy this." I don't accept this as magic. Or I don't expect you as I don't accept you as a as a deity that leads them to unleash this. Um, now, in any case, we're getting these kind of sur surreal images for the rest of the story. Now, this crowd that the narrator is with breaks up into three groups. The first three columns are described as quote one disappeared into a narrow alley to the left, leaving only an echo of a shocking moan. So one just goes down an alley around the corner and he hears a moaning the next another filed down a weeded choked subway entrance hollowing with a laughter that was mad so they sort of go insane when they go into the subway my own column was sucked towards the open country and presently i felt a chill for it was not the hot autumn for as we stalked out of the dark moon we beheld around us a hellish moon glitter of evil snows end quote so there's kind of like they've, they've kind of transported it to a different time or the world's undergone this radical change in this moment of Nairal Apatev's rage at being called out as being a charlatan. Now, the description of this column goes on because we don't hear any more of the other two columns. But um, see. trackless, inexplicable snow swept asunder in one direction where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glittering walls. The columns seemed very thin indeed as it plodded dreamily into the gulf. I lingered behind, for the black rift of the green-litten snow was frightful, and I thought I had heard reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished, but my power to linger was slight. As if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half-floated towards the titanic snowdrift, quivering and afraid into the sightless vortex of the unimaginable. And that gets us to the final paragraph, and the final paragraph is just totally surreal imagery of of a world in collapse overwhelmed by gods of various types or, or monsters of every types monsters uh quote monstrous things have seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest on nameless rocks the revolting graveyard of the universe the muffled maddening beating of drums the thin monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivably unlit chambers beyond time and on and on like this and so the last paragraph is just this kind of breakdown uh, of total madness, total chaos. Uh, the, the world has, has completely fallen into the, quote, blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Nyarlathotep. But even all of this is sort of intermixed with, with, with kind of some modern technologies. They seem to have kind of warped into the future, actually. That's, that's kind of my first reading of it, and I think that's, that, that might be true. Um, but like this final sentence of it, the detestable pounding and piping where to dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic temperance ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles of souls dialopotep. It's kind of like modern broadcasting, I guess, kind of uh, outworldly um, broadcasting. So that is the story. Uh, now, obviously, we get. Uh, a few more mentions of this god in other stories, but usually it's very, very brief, just, just the name in some cases, or, or not much more. And out of this, 
people have built this whole sort of mythology of this god and I, I think that's not a bad thing i think it's kind of fascinating um you know here what does the wikipedia say well the wikipedia entry starts with in the works of hp lovecraft and what it says about this particular story is in this story he wanders the earth seemingly gathering legions of followers the narrator of the story among them though his demonstrations are strange and seemingly magical instruments these followers lose awareness of the world around them and through the narrator's increasingly unreliable counts, the reader gets the impression of the world's collapse, right? So yeah, that's sort of what's happening, right? So as these various people ex observe him or experience him, they go mad and, and the world eventually follows that path. Um, he's just sort of mentioned in the Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadat and the Fungi of Yugoth. It's essentially retelling the original poem. Um, he appears in the dreams of the witch house uh, to Walter Gilman, the main character there. Um, so there's a little bit more to say about him in that story. And finally, in The Haunter in the Dark, um, it's another manifestation, right? So Lovecraft, by the end of his career, have, has, has painted these different avatars of, of this character, appearing as a story, a character in four stories, um, but mentioned a few other times. Um, but from this, the various writers have kind of gotten his genealogy down, like who's, which other outer gods he's related to, even gods that aren't directly, you know, Lovecraftian creations like Haster, um, but somehow connected to the outer gods like Yogg-Toth and Cthulhu. Um, so, you know, he's seen though as like a messenger, right? Quote, Nihilopotep enacts the will of the outer gods and is their messenger heart and soul. He is also a servant of Azatoth, his father, who wishes he immediately who wishes he immediately fulfills. Unlike the other outer gods, causing madness is more important and enjoyable than death and destruction. It is suggested by some that he will destroy the human race or possibly Earth as well. You know, and then you just got you know scores of stories that that use him in you know different pop culture um, forms, board games, video games, films, comics, and elsewhere. So. From this kind of fairly thin, but I think deep and kind of rich story. Um, I mean, it's short. I don't mean it's thin. It's short. It's it's physically thin, but it's dense. It's, it's got a lot going on here. You know, they've they've been able to pull out, and Lovecraft himself was able to kind of build on this this mythology. So that in itself makes the story sort of a breakthrough tale for Lovecraft is that he's creating his own god, and he's going to do that a lot more in his stories or borrow gods from other fantasy weird tales writers and and bring them into his own kind of conception of the universe shared universe he's building up in his stories um but you know this is the start of it i think that's that's interesting now as for our themes here it's it's pretty relevant actually i think you have a lot here just about kind of the about modernity and lovecraft would think about modernity throughout his life uh both with i'm mean, mostly with anxiety about it um his playing with technology here i think is really striking and how you have an ancient god putting on the mask the mask of Nyarlathotep, right the putting on the mask of of a modern technological performer it's kind of really cool you have the role of dreams played with here it's not purely a dreamland story but you have the role of dreams here you have the, at least the hint of racial otherness, both in the god himself coming from Egypt, but also in this very 
I think, enigmatic line. The yellow evil face is appearing behind the fallen monument and the battling against blackness. So there's a bit of a racial politics here, at least if you want to kind of squint and dig into it. Um, so yeah, a lot of great stuff going on in this, this, this story, but it's not very long. The whole thing takes only, the audiobook for this is only eight minutes. And as short as Ex Oblivione was, that was five. So it's only like literally one page longer than Ex Oblivione, which barely seems to be a story. But this just has a lot more to talk about and think about. If I had like some comrades here, some friends, we could probably talk a lot about this story for another hour, I think. Um, but you know, as we kind of bounce ideas off each other and kind of go deeper into some sections that really pique them, but uh, just as me alone, I, I think I've sort of exhausted what I want to say about this story. But I think there's a lot that maybe you can add to this, or maybe you're more steeped in the mythology of this god, uh, how he's kind of evolved over time. I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about that. But certainly we're going to remember him, and when we see him appear in the Dreams of the Witch House or the Haunter of the Dark, we're going to remember this story and, and kind of see how Lovecraft does sort of build up a mythology of this, of this god. So, um, yeah, that, I guess that's going to be it for now. I thought I might say a little bit more about them, but I guess not. It's still short. It's still short. Um, so the next story that I'll talk about is was written about the very same time, the same month as Nyarlathotep, and it's called The Picture in the House. And I like this story. It's got, it's got a lot of Atlantic history in it, which I like. So um, it's a little bit longer. I think it's set in Arkham. Might be his first story set clearly in Arkham. So that's it. Longer story. It's we have had a few short ones. Now we're gonna get a long one. And it's one I like, so I'm looking forward to talking about that with you. So uh, but if you have any thoughts about Narlapatep, send them to me. Send an email. Or leave a comment or whatever. Send me a Twitter. Whatever you do. I will love to hear from you and and I'll share your thoughts to the to the group. But that's going to be it for now. So I will we'll see you next time.